Hello, and welcome to the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. Be sure to listen all the way through to the end of the episode for additional info on where to find more resources for past sermons, as well as how to watch us live each Sunday if you can't join us in person at our Columbus, Ohio location. Let's prepare to hear this week's sermon and listen for what God is saying to you and what he wants to do in your life. Well, in conversations I've had with people who um, either aren't Jesus followers, uh, haven't yet decided to follow Jesus, or uh, I've also had some conversations with former Jesus followers who are in uh, the trendy deconstruction phase. I don't know if you've heard about this, but it's a little bit on trend. People who grew up in the church kind of deconstruct their way out of the Christian faith. And uh, in in both of these types of conversations, the question of authority, who is your authority has proven to be fascinating uh, question to ask in those situations. With uh, a woman uh, in my last church who was deconstructing, you know, she had had some uh, kind of liberal uh, professor at college that had, uh, you know, a very liberal state, kind of the Thomas Jefferson Bible, like cut out the stuff you don't like or the supernatural stuff. And, you know, just basically the Bible lost all weight and, and, and so, you know, she's picking and choosing what, what she likes. And, and I just asked her, like, so, you know, when I read the Bible and there's something I don't like, uh, I, I have to stop and figure out why I don't like it. Because I think the Bible's right and I'm wrong. Uh, when you read the Bible, how do you decide who's right and who's wrong? And <clears throat> it pretty much ended the conversation. She just started like, oh, I, you know, I'm, I, I'm fine. I, God, I, I'm fine with God. God's fine with me. Everything's fine. We're all fine. Everything's fine. It was just like, it, it, it didn't, she couldn't answer the question. Uh, <clears throat> because the answer is most of us would resist saying I'm in charge. I don't think very few of us would say, uh, it, it feels frowned upon to be like, I am the authority. Um, we're not allowed to say that, but that's how a lot of people live. Same, same with a, a guy, super smart guy uh, that I hung out with regularly, didn't know Jesus or didn't follow Jesus. And you know, he just like was, he was inventing his own religion. Like he, he, he liked some things from Jesus and just totally blow off other things that Jesus said that contradicted what he liked. And, and I, same question, you know, who's in charge? Who's, who is your authority? And, uh, he just kind of blinked at me and then was like, oh, I need to take my daughter home now. We were at the park or something. And, uh, and then he texted me the next day and was like, well, I guess I need to follow Jesus now, huh? <laughs> because it, it pierces through that question because uh, people are realizing, like, maybe I'm not the best authority. Um, this is all, all these things, all, all these angles around authority where we are afraid of it, but we need it, where we want to be our own authority, but we know it's not okay to say. And then if we think about the pressure of being our own authority, it should, it should rightly terrify us. It should rightly terrify us if we are the ones that are, that are in charge. Today, as we continue our journey through the Gospel of Mark, Jesus finally arrives at Jerusalem. He did most of his ministry in uh, the north region of Israel, and over the last few weeks of our journey, he's made his way south uh, to Jerusalem, and he's telling them, spoiler alert, I'm going to be rejected, betrayed, and killed when we get there. 
And our text today shows Jesus in two very contrasting ways. It starts really sweet and exciting, kind of like the high point of the Gospel of Mark, and then gets really intense and offensive, arguably the low point in the Gospel of Mark. And to summarize the two moves of this chapter, that we kind of see the, the two sides of Jesus. We see Jesus, the King, who comes in peace to save God's people, and then Jesus the king who comes to judge with authority and righteousness. We have to see both of these angles, these aspects of who Jesus is in the text. We're going to, I just had Jeff read the last half, but we're looking at the entire chapter 11 passage today. Uh, We, most of us like peaceful Jesus who comes to save us. That's a, that's a Jesus that doesn't need a lot of, a, a lot of public relations help. But what we see in the scriptures is that there is no Jesus the Savior if, there, if he isn't Jesus the King. There's no Jesus who gives rest for our souls and forgiveness for our sins and healing to our minds and bodies if there isn't Jesus the Master, the King, the righteous judge of all the earth. I was hitting all the bad words today, judging authority, master, like none of these words seem politically correct anymore, but that is who the scriptures reveal Jesus to be. And Jesus cannot be our savior if he isn't also our master and king. So it's a weighty text this morning. And the the main idea that I have for us is that the only way Jesus can be good news to us is if we receive him as the authoritative king with childlike trust and a willingness to die to ourselves. A little clunky maybe. I'm trying to incorporate some of the main thrust of Jesus' teaching in the last couple chapters. The only way that Jesus can be gospel, that Jesus can be good news, is if we receive him as the authoritative king with childlike trust and a willingness to die to ourselves. Uh, back in chapter 10, the chapter right before this, he talks about the children, people such as these, people, the, people like kids who don't have a lot to offer, don't have any power or authority or money or anything. It's like people like this who receive the kingdom of God. Um, and if you don't receive the kingdom of God like a child, then you will not enter it, Jesus says. And then right after that, we have the rich young ruler, the person that, you know, gun to our head, we probably all really want to be like. Someone who was young and wealthy and influential and had his own authority and was also a morally upstanding guy. And Jesus extends the invitation to become like a child. Sell all your possessions, give them away, and come follow me with nothing to offer. Come follow me like a child following his father around, like a a servant to a king or a student to a master rabbi. And what happens? the rich young ruler goes away sad. He cannot accept Jesus' teaching and authority, and he refuses to allow Jesus to be king because for in order for Jesus to be king, he would have had to die to his way of life, his wealth and the comfort and approval and significance that he got from all of that. His wealth was functionally his authority. We just see in the scriptures that Jesus was the best news, the good news to lots of people, and that he was the, the aroma of death 
to others. Others were so infuriated by him, so offended that he got murdered. And we see this in our text today. And it's the question for all of us. Will, will we allow Jesus to be our authority, to receive Jesus uh, as he is, as the authoritative king, as the judge of all the earth, in humility, in humility, accepting his authority, accepting the difficult teachings? Uh, even if we don't like them at first, do we, do we have the strength, the courage to sit with them, <laughs> to see how God might change us through them? Do we have, are we willing to receive rebuke of our own lives, to receive a call to change or to give up something that feels so impossible that it feels like death? I mean, he said, unless you take up your cross, unless you deny yourself, you can't be my disciple or will we reject Jesus and kill the work of God in our lives? Like this is a choice that God has given to us. And as we, we will see in the end of our text, the, the one option that is not available to us is spineless indecision. Wishy-washy, just Jesus as my homeboy kind of thing. Everything about the gospel from the beginning to the end is around this question, who do you say Jesus is? And does your life back that up? And do you live according to who you say Jesus is? Is he the king with all authority, the master with final say over your life? Or is he a madman who offends you, who threatens your comfort, who tells you, invites you to do things that sound like death and you don't want to do them? So let's dive in, starting with the happy part. Verse one. As they approached Jerusalem... And came to Bethpage in Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, just as you enter it. You will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at, the doorway, at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered Jesus, they answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and, th and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked at everything, around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. So here, Jesus, at the end of his journey to Jerusalem, the final leg from Jericho, where he was just before this, up to Jerusalem on a hill, was, uh, was a steep climb. Uh, Jerusalem was almost 3,000 feet above sea level Jericho, uh, the lowest city on earth was 800 feet below sea level. So on the distance, I think a less, less than 20 miles, he climbed 4,000 feet uphill. And, and then this was a, a famous moment on the road to Jerusalem, this uphill journey. It was when you get to the Mount of Olives at Bethphage, looking at Jerusalem, you can kind of see uh, Jerusalem in the distance. And he sends his disciples to pick up a colt, which we know is a donkey from other accounts of this. And 
And if anyone questions, say, the Lord hath need of it. That's the King James Version. The Lord hath need of it. Sounds very regal. Uh, did, Did Jesus know the donkey owner? Like, did he set this up ahead of time? Or something. Um, I was kind of wondering, like, maybe we should go out to the parking lot and find the nicest car and just ask for the keys. You know, the Lord hath need of it, or something like that. Uh, but it is a kingly move to just go and say, "Hey, I'm just going to take your donkey for a minute. And I'll give it back." The triumphant, this triumphant entry of Jesus entering Jerusalem is loaded with messianic, Messiah, kingly imagery from the Old Testament. Most famously is Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Culturally, a king's mode of transportation into a city signified what, what he was about, what his intention was. If he rode on a stallion... You could guess what he was about. It was a war horse. He, it meant war. But traditionally, if a king rode in on a donkey, he meant peace. It's a beautiful picture. Jesus, the king, coming in peace. The laying down of coats and branches before a king was a sign of praise, of elation. And they start shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes <clears throat> in the name of the Lord. And they're quoting Psalm 118, which was a psalm that Jewish people would have sang on the way to Jerusalem for generations. Let me just read part of it that applies, starting in verse, uh, Psalm 118, starting verse 19. Open for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. So the NIV uh, translates, Lord, save us. That's, that's Hosanna. Hosanna is this beautiful Hebrew word. It's so fun to learn this, that it, it literally means save us, save us now. It's a plea. It's a cry for salvation that had become a shout of praise and worship. I think that's beautiful. It's ascribing worth, worship, and value to the, the only one who can save. You're adoring and exalting in the only one who, who can save as you're asking and pleading for salvation. And Jesus enters Jerusalem as this beautiful bright spot. This moment is like the ethereal fleeting moment where it's like, oh, did they get it? You know, from the very beginning of verse 1, we know that this is Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. But then we've been mired in all these circumstances where people don't get it in this bright spot. They're singing Hosanna to Jesus as he rides like a king into God's holy city. Even though people don't fully get what's happening, the truth is shouted. The fulfillment of prophecies and songs from millennia ago, the long-awaited king, the hope of Israel is here. But I love how anticlimactic the scene ends. It's like, he's here, but the day was late, so he went back out. You know, it's like you go to a city and you, for a conference and it's packed. You can only find a hotel, you know, in the suburbs. So you, you're like, oh, we're downtown, but it's late. I'm just going to go back to the, 
back, back to the hotel or something like that. Kind of, kind of anticlimactic. But the key here is Jesus' kingship. He comes as the king to save God's people. He comes with all power, but he comes in peace. Humble, gentle, riding on a donkey. He comes to save people. Save people from what? We see that next. Look at verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, they went along and saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Well, did uh, anybody else get hungry from this passage? Jesus was hungry in it. He was looking for some food. It's also another example of a Markin sandwich, which if you've been through some of our other teachings, is a literary device that I think is a funny title. It kind of sounds scholarly, like it's a Markin sandwich, but then it's just a sandwich, where basically what we have is the temple cleansing sandwiched by this thing going on with the fig tree. It's weird. Uh, like two related things are the bread in order to teach us something about the thing in the middle or vice versa. And the key here with the fig tree is that this whole thing is an enacted parable. It's, it's one of the weirdest, I think, miracles, definitely the weirdest miracle, weirdest parts of the gospel stories. But Jesus is doing something with the fig tree that is meant to be a parable, is meant to teach us about what is happening with the temple cleansing. If you read it, read the, the fig tree thing by itself, it almost sounds like Jesus was just like hangry, you know, like that where you're so hungry, you start to get angry. Um, maybe I'm the only one that gets that way. But, you know, he's looking for some breakfast from the tree and just gets frustrated and just like, you know, uses his Jesus powers to curse the tree for letting him down. But that seems really unreasonable because it says in the text, it's not the season for figs. Like, why would Jesus get angry for not having figs if it wasn't seasoned for figs. The key phrase here, and we'll get to it when we get to the bottom part of the sandwich, is the disciples heard him say it. Anytime there's something about the disciples hearing or seeing something, it means that Jesus is teaching them, and by extension, us. After the showdown with the tree, Jesus enters the temple, and we have the most non-Mr. Rogers story about Jesus in the whole Bible. It's a crazy, violent scene. The temple back then had, had several courts that were kind of nested in, 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 inside of each other. The, in the middle was the Holy of Holies, where the, the presence of God dwelt. And only one man, once a year, the day of Yom Kippur, could go to atone for 
uh, the, the sins of everyone. And then outside that was the, the court of Israel where only Jewish men could enter. And then there was a court for women. And then the biggest court, the outer courts, was for the Gentiles, which were huge, would have been like multiple acres. And especially on Passover, which is the time of year, the high, one of the high holy days of Israel at this point in the story, this court would have been an absolute madhouse. Like one, uh, one historian uh, recorded that two, over 250,000 sheep were bought and sold and sacrificed over a Passover. Quarter of a million sheep. Just imagine that many lambs coming and going and being sacrificed and all that. And then there was all kinds of funny business with changing money, where a separate currency was required. It was the only thing accepted at the temple. So if you wanted to come and offer a sacrifice, you had to buy a, a, a perfect lamb from the lamb people, but you could only do that with special temple money. Uh, so you had to exchange your money for a fee. So part of the madness was people just obeying the Passover laws to sacrifice the lamb. But another part of the madness was the religious elite getting rich off of earnest worshipers that had no other choice. And another tragedy is that this space that would have been like a cross between like a Wall Street trading floor and like a poorly run farm, like just crazy madness, loud, noisy, this place was the only place open to Gentile, you know, non-Jewish God worshipers who wanted to come and worship. They were kept out of the inner courts, which would have been quieter, more worshipful. The closest that non-Jewish people, people from the nations, not Israel, could come to the Holy of Holies was this chaotic Wall Street animal market thing. And Jesus comes in, and is so angry. He had seen it the night before, presumably. What it said, it said very clearly, he came and looked around. And so he's been chewing and stewing on it all night. But I just want to say that this anger from Jesus, this violence from Jesus, is not Jesus losing his temper for even a minute. He is furious but he's furious with a righteous anger, with the steady, appropriate, righteous anger of a holy God. John's gospel account of the story says that he wove together a whip. He made his own whip. Have you ever been that angry where you like took time to get leather and like weave your own whip? Jesus quotes two Old Testament passages that shed light on God's anger towards the situation. The reference to house of prayer for all nations is from Isaiah 56, verse 7, where it speaks of God's salvation, God's hosanna, if you will, uh, extending to people who were formally excluded from it, which would have been foreigners and eunuchs and exiles and Gentiles. And then the den of thieves, the den of robbers is from Jeremiah 7, which is a, a, a fierce denunciation of the temple operation, uh, which describes the destruction of the Israelite cult site at Shiloh, uh, where the Israelite religion had been kind of twisted into this cultic thing. And robbers emphasizes the extortion inherent in a cult, in a temple cult. 
in assaulting the money changers and the animal sellers and calling the Sanhedrin a club of thieves, Jesus is condemning its commercialization, its financial misappropriation, and its unnecessary, unbiblical exclusivity. We talked a few weeks ago, another super fun sermon about money, dangers of money. Uh, The Bible over and over again shows how money can be useful, but is dangerous, is a liability to your soul, can hinder you from entering the kingdom of God. And wealth is so deceptive that it's easy to look at this like from an outside observer and be like, this is crazy. This is so evil. But this didn't end up like this overnight. It wasn't like they were doing it right, you know, one Passover and the next Passover. It was like this crazy extortion racket thing. There's little things over time. And the deception of wealth can co-opt the worship of God to the point where you are getting rich in God's temple from religious activities. You're worshiping money in the place set aside for the worship of God. It's very scary stuff. Using people's desire to draw near to God as a way to get money. Well, the religious leaders are furious, of course. They're trying to kill Jesus. Uh, but they're, they're in a tough spot because the crowd is loving Jesus and they didn't want an uprising, you know, or to lose control. And, and, and just put yourself in the place of someone coming to celebrate the Passover to buy a lamb. Like you saved up all year to have money to buy a lamb without blemish and you get to the temple and the exchange rates are different than last year and you don't have enough and you have to go like sell something in order to have enough. And you're like, and then Jesus is flipping tables over and saying, this isn't right. And you're like, yes, thank you. Yes. It isn't right. This is the tension. Jesus is messing up the, this bustling temple scene. People are kind of getting excited because he's calling out injustices. The next day, the disciples see that the tree that had been cursed was withered, withered to the roots. And that's the bottom piece of bread of our Mark and sandwich. This is like almost weird to say out loud. It's the only destructive miracle uh, in, in the New Testament, where supernatural power was used to destroy something, which is kind of, kind of uh, squirmy. But remember, it's an enacted parable. Because fig trees, biblically, were an image that had been used from the Old Testament as in prophecies of judgment against God's people, often in reference to fruitfulness, like the result or outcome of your life or way of life were behavior. Uh, From the beginning, God's covenant with his people, the plan was that he would bless a certain people who would then in turn be a blessing to all the nations, that they would take the blessings from God and use that to bless other nations and help other nations come to know the one true God. And the prophets used the fig tree as a symbol of judgment. Uh, one, One passage in Jeremiah says, there will be no figs on the tree and their leaves will wither uh, after a denunciation of Judah for failing to be faithful to the covenant. The fig tree is showing what the temple and its leaders had become and were doing, is that they were fruitless and sick, doing the, the opposite of what they were meant to do. Instead of pointing the nations to God, it had filled the outer courts where the nations were allowed to gather and draw near to God with the worship of money. Now we've got to get nerdy about fig trees for a minute. So fig trees, they have one harvest a year in the fall, 
and then the branches of the fig tree, they sprout buds that remain, that, that kind of get on the branch in the wintertime, and they stay there through the spring, uh, and they're known as pajim. And then they follow, once those are there, then the, the leaves come, and the, and the buds stay on the same branches. And in April, the the spring, there, there's fig knobs. You, you can tell I'm not a fig farmer. I'm really trying to get this right. Hang with me. There are these little knobs, and that's what that picture is, where they're not, they're not ripe figs. It's not the season for figs. They're kind of like these, these pre-fig kind of things that have been on the branches. And uh, so once you saw a tree and leaf in the spring, you could expect to find these little knobs, or th- that's what the commentator said. I don't know what a knob is, K-N-O-P. Um, and people would eat them. Uh, they, you know, as just like a little, as a little snack or whatever. They're, they're not ripe figs, but they can be eaten. And so a tree is green with leaves, but doesn't have any uh, pachyum on them, then it shows that there's something wrong with the tree, that it's sick, that it's not bearing fruit. It won't bear fruit when the harvest comes. It's got the signs of fruit, but no fruit. The scary reality. This is the enacted parable with the fig. The temple had signs of fruit, but was actually barren, was not producing fruit. You think back to the crazy bustling scene in the temple courts, thousands of people coming to worship God and offer sacrifices. It would have looked busy, tons of people having lots of church activity to do, church attendance would have... Church attendance counters would have looked out and be like, wow, we're blowing up. And the church treasurer would have said, like, this is great. We can, you know, make a new addition on our building. Uh, we got butts and bucks. All the things that you need. There was a ton of religious activity. People were busy doing churchy things, but there was no fruit. Okay. Can I just be honest with you? Like, this gives me the shivers. This is a terrifying reality. Religious busyness. Butts in the pew, bucks in the bank. Doesn't equal faithfulness or fruitfulness. And even more piercing is just doing church things. Doing religious-y type activities does not equal fruit or faithfulness. I mean, of course, I pray that we'll have more butts in the pews, and I hope all of you join me in contributing with your money to what God's doing here. But Jesus' rebuke and kingly judgment at the busyness of the temple, the money focus of the temple at, at this moment is brutal, and it leads to withering destruction. So a few decades later, uh, this temple was destroyed. Not one stone left on top of another. Uh, the Romans came in. And so if we're just trying to receive the scriptures as they are, as we walk through here, we would be fools to not slow down and consider what, what our king is saying here and what, it ha- what he has for us. In the parable of Jesus, the enacted parable, Jesus curses the fig tree because it was already sick. It wasn't healthy. It was just taking up space, wasting water and dirt. It's a hard word, but it could be a life-saving word. It's a life-saving word to me as a pastor. I mean, our, our work here together as a church family 
Uh, our efforts and service and teaching is worth nothing. It's just busy work. It's just you know, rearranging chairs on the Titanic if it isn't bearing true fruit and flowing from the Holy Spirit. Uh, and I believe that starts with the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our own individual lives. Like if we, you and I, aren't growing more in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, as we are being the church and doing the activities of the church, then like, what are we doing here? I mean, just think about it. If I'm working so hard to get my sermons just right that I'm like a stressed out jerk to my wife and kids, something's missing. Like, you know, what are we actually doing here? If we're so anxious about our church event going right that we're snappy and arguing and miss out on actually loving the people we hope to reach, then our, our labors are in vain. If we're doing something in order to reach people with the gospel, like that's a good desire. We want to reach people and produce fruit. Do we have the space to consider if it's actually reaching people, if it's actually bearing fruit? This is where, you know, the tail starts to wag the dog or whatever, where something that we've done, we just keep doing and with the intention deep down to reach people, but we just keep doing it because it's our idea, or we like it, or we're not sure what else to do, or whatever. But it is an incredible invitation to experience the grace of God and to exercise humility to say, to ask the question, was that well-intentioned effort fruitful? Or maybe at risk of putting too fine a point on it, maybe what worked in the past doesn't seem to be fruitful anymore. And so this thing that I love, this thing that has so, such good memories for me is something that I need to die to in order to pursue true fruitfulness in what God's inviting me into, you into, our church family together into. Otherwise, we risk just becoming like a bunch of busy, stressed, religious people that have signs of life, but no true life are actually barren. When we refuse to consider fruitfulness, like the fruit in our own souls and sanctification, that's why we're focusing on regeneration this year. Like, do we see the fruit of God's love and the gospel in our lives? And we refuse to consider the fruitfulness of our activities and what the best way forward is. Uh, it, I think we got to hear King Jesus' warning that there, there will be a withering. I know this is a hard word. My heart is not to criticize anything, but just to convey the question that Jesus, I think, conveys in this text. Because the, the anger of Jesus was not at the degenerate sinners outside the church, outside the religious space. It was at the church people, at the religious people. And I think this text can be an invitation for us to consider our own hearts, our own religious activity, and see what... God might say to us. And on an encouraging note, I think we're already kind of doing this as a church family. We were approached by LifeWise last winter, this new outreach program we've never done, um, to reach out to public school kids. Uh, and it's hard and it's different. Like Julie Large and the team have just been grinding, try to work through this. And it's required us 
to say no to things we've done in the past, things that we knew how to do, things that we like to do, uh, and in order to, to focus on this new opportunity. Uh, and we've been feeling the neediness and been prayer walking around Forest Park Elementary on Tuesdays. You can join us this, this week. Um, and many of you have jumped on to support LifeWise. You know, $8.33 a month uh, will fund one child to do the whole LifeWise program for a year, um, $100 a year basically is what that is. You know, I, and I, I think about this program, this is a little bit of a, a, a tangent. I think about kids in chaotic households where their parents are inconsistent or not present, where you know, life just feels chaotic. And just like what a joy it would be to tell them about a God who loves them and is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The God whose steadfast love and mercy would follow them all the days of their life. So anyways, obviously I'm excited about LifeWise. But I think it's a great example. It's something new and it's been hard, uh, but we, we've caused us to pray. But I, I'm hopeful for fruit, reaching people who don't know about Jesus. So now we look at Jesus' uh, teaching about the fig tree, his teaching to the disciples. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. This is Jesus' application, prayer and forgiveness. Both of these things, in order to pray and to forgive, requires us to become like a child and, and, and to some degree has an experience of death. Part of us has to die, and that's our main point. The way we receive Jesus as good news is, is we receive him as the king with childlike trust and willingness to die to ourselves. If asking parents for stuff was a spiritual discipline, then my kids are like the most spiritual people on the planet. Um, all kids are. Kids just ask for stuff all the time. And Jesus says that with the childlike trust that God is good, that he loves you to death, that he's all-powerful, ask, pray for stuff, like crazy things, like mountains being moved. I'm so into prayer right now because it's this activity that we can choose to do that kind of intrinsically puts us in a posture of childlike trust, asking our Father for what we want. Uh, Johnny's been asking me all summer, when are we going to get a boat? When can we get a boat? And the answer is never. We'll never get a boat because we live in Ohio. <laughs> and, you know, the, the, best, the best days you, of owning a boat are the day you buy it and the day you sell it. You've heard, you've heard that joke. But Johnny doesn't care. He just keeps asking, when are we going to get a boat? Can we get that boat? Whenever we pass a boat, that's for sale. <clears throat> because we trust, he, he trusts me that it's okay to just ask. And I will keep telling him no all, all the time. Uh, and I love where we are in the LifeWise project because it has us walking around Forest Park Elementary being like, God, we want a bus. <laughs> we need a bus. We, what, what are we going to do? We need people to do this stuff. And we don't have a time to do a full teaching on the theology of prayer. You know, how do we understand the reality? And this is a reality that sometimes prayers are unanswered or at least not answered the way we want. Um, but then we have these statements from Jesus you know, believe, and it's yours. We don't have time to do all that. But suffice it to say that 
praying requires us to trust God that we can ask him for anything, like a boat or a bus, but also it requires us to trust his infinitely greater wisdom, knowledge, understanding of our own hearts, our own lives, the cosmos, in the sense that it would not go good for our family if we bought a boat. Like, you know, it's, it's just, I say no to the boat dream because we got, you know, other things to spend money on, um, like shoes and stuff. And, uh, or, you know, my kids, most mornings, ask to come to work with me, which melts my heart, and I love it. Uh, but I know I'm going to come into my office and sit quietly and read and write for like four hours. And that, that would feel like being grounded for them. And they're going to go to the playground with their friends or, you know, whatever, play in the backyard. Uh, like there, there is this trust in prayer where we just pour out our hearts, whatever you want, bus, boat, whatever. Uh, and then we trust that God is our father and he's not going to give us something we don't need, something that would be destructive. And we trust that there's things we don't know that we are not the king. We don't have all the wisdom and authority. So prayer is right here in the text. It's one of the applications of Jesus being king and becoming like a child. And it's powerful. It moves the hands of God. And you can choose to do it. it like prayer begets prayer. You know, it's a, it's at the beginning, it might feel hard or whatever, but the more you into it, the more you get into it, it gets easier. And then it also requires you to die to that scheming, controlling, it's all on me part of your life. Speaking for a friend, you know, like prayer was speaking about me, you know, like as more and more prayer becomes my instinct instead of like, how can I handle and fix this problem all by myself with the resources that I have, blah, 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 blah. We, we die to that part of ourselves and enter into the space of a trusting child. Second application is from Jesus is forgiveness which feels, it feels like a, like a tangent, right? Like we got the temple, we got some prayer. Why are we talking about forgiveness all of a sudden, Jesus? But he does this a lot. He connects prayer to forgiveness. I think in my experience, when, when I choose to slow down, quiet my heart before God, consider what my heart really wants and pour that out before God, uh, hurts come up. Things that were done to us float to the surface. Pain that we often use our busyness to avoid comes to the surface when we slow down to, to pray, to be with God. And it's, and it's not fun to have these wounds and pains come to the surface. And, but it is an invitation to do the work of forgiveness. And forgiveness feels like death. If you think there's just... I, just, I can't even think about that, let alone consider forgiving that person, then, then you're thinking about forgiveness accurately. I mean, the basis of forgiveness is what? Jesus' brutal execution on the cross. That pain, that, that sense of death in the work of forgiveness is a tender invitation from your Father in heaven to be healed of the wound, set free from bitterness and toxic resentment. And it's a fool's errand to try to repress bitter, angry thoughts towards another human and, and be childlike in prayer, to be still before God, like it's going to find you, you know. Uh, instead, pray, God, I hate what this person did to me. Read the imprecatory psalms. I, uh, that, that always make me a little squirmy, these psalms and the scriptures that, that where we, you can pour out your rage towards a person to God. 
which sounds unspiritual or unholy, but one, it's in the Bible. You got to do something with that. Two, it makes sense because you're pouring that out to the one person who is just and merciful, the one person who will set all things right. You're in that pouring out. You're getting that, that toxicity out of your heart and you're, and you're putting it on the one who can handle it, who the one can heal you and make all things right. It forms you to have unfiltered, honest prayers before God around the things, and then to, to ask him, beg him, ask the Holy Spirit to help, help you forgive that person. Who, who's he bringing to mind right now? Who's the Holy Spirit bringing to mind? What wound is in your mind right now? To close, look at this showdown Jesus has with the temple people. Verse 27, they arrive again in Jerusalem. And while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask them, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. So Jesus, back in Jerusalem, back in the temple courts after his uh, temple cleansing, which is a bold move, like he's not hiding, and he's confronted by people that want to kill him to ask him a question, uh, which on some level is, you know, reasonable. Like if you came into my living room and just started like trashing it, I'd be like, uh, why are you doing this? Who do you think you are trashing my living room? Uh, but that's, that's not really what they're going for. It was not just an honest like inquiry. Um, they're trying to get him to say that he's God so they have a cause to kill him. He knows they're not really asking like, if Jesus says, oh, well, the authority to do this is that I'm God and you guys need to repent. They'll be, oh, okay, we didn't know. So now we'll do that. Like, that's not, that's not why they're, they're asking. And Jesus' answer is brilliant because in answering the question with a question, he shuts them down and uses their fear of man, their desire to save face against them. Uh, so they have no capacity to come after him, keep coming after him, at least in that moment. They say, we don't know. It is a spineless non-answer. Pick a side, guys. At least publicly. Obviously, we know what side they're on. But that is a question for all of us. Are we really seeking truth? And are we willing to accept truth if we find it by basing our whole lives on it? Or do we stay in the wishy-washy middle ground where... <clears throat> Yeah, Jesus died for my sins. He's my savior, but, but I got the rest of it. I can handle the rest of my life. He's not my Lord. He can be my savior, but not my Lord. To say you believe in a powerful God, a powerful supernatural being that is absolute and above you, but then not spend our lives, you know, considering what he said and how to live just doesn't make any sense. And so the, the last invitation to close is just to, to, to pick a side. If, and for some of us, that might mean being honest, that like I'm living as a functional atheist. Functionally, I am my own God. I decide what I do and how I do it, and that's, that's it. 
uh, maybe you just need to go do that for a time. See, see how that works for you. But my prayer for you is that you'd hear Jesus inviting you to die to your broken ways and come and be with him. Come be with the only authority that lays down his life for the people over which he has authority, who lays down his life in love. It uses his authority to make you whole. If you're wondering how, you're like, I'm not really quite sure who my authority is, or I'm not really quite sure. Um, I, I heard... Uh, a teaching that described the fear of the Lord as attention. I'll try not to give a bonus sermon here, but I would just invite you to consider who gets my attention or what gets my attention. Is it the news, my Facebook feed, my friends at the coffee shop? Like, who do you listen to and go to for input? Is it scripture, your church family? You know, or is it something else? I think a lot of times that looks like, you know, we trust Jesus to save us from our sins and then we go to our politics for how to live or what's right and wrong. Or we go to some, you know, financial guru or influencer on social media. And so there's no shame or guilt. But if you just want a rubric, a metric, just like to be curious about who your authority is, just look at your day, an average day and what do you give your attention to? And I invite you to turn from whatever it is, if it's not Jesus, and, and spend time every day soaking in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If he's the king with all authority, if he's the righteous judge, then we, we should marinate our minds and our, our hearts in his words and actions uh, because he's the king who loves you and wants to lead you to life and life to the full. Let me pray. for tuning in to the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. We hope you found something that can be applied to your life today and into the future. You can always watch our past services or see them live on YouTube, Facebook, and our website at www.carlroadbaptist.org. That's Carl with a K-A-R-L, roadbaptist.org. If you search YouTube or Facebook, look for Call Road Baptist Church, and don't forget to subscribe or follow us if you are watching via a service that allows that so you can stay up to date and notified when another episode is ready for you to watch or listen to. Thanks again for sharing your time with us and putting in the effort to maintain your relationship with God. Have a fantastic week, and we look forward to growing alongside you in the future with the next episode of the KRBC Podcast.